You are listening to Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you would like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. Justification. Justification. You'll see it come up here in a variety of different central and important theological concepts here that we're going over that are, are a, it's a wonderful topic for the season of joy that we're in. There's not too many things that can bring joy like being told you've been forgiven of your sins. Justification is a joyous topic. So let's look at Romans 3, verse 21. This is Paul's treatise on justification and one of the seminal passages here. Romans 3, 21, now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. I love that phrase. For there is no distinction. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all, in a sense, all, everyone here is then justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for this day. Thank you for the joy that is our salvation, the joy of the Lord that is our strength. Thank you, Lord, that you have come. You have have visited us from on high. You have ushered in the forgiveness of our sins by the giving of your life on the cross and the power of your resurrection over the dead. We thank you, God, that today we stand in righteousness and in peace with God because of what you have done for us on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you, God, in the convergence of Christmas and Easter and the gospel message and how we reflect on it today, we pray to you. God, I pray that you would be with these people, you would bless these families, you would care for those who are sick, you would be with the needy. God, you would remind and fill our hearts with the hope of your salvation. Lord, we look forward to what you are teaching us and we look forward to what you have for us in this season and this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So gifts of grace, we've been going through this uh, devotional by Jared Wilson on maybe in your personal time, maybe you've had this. It's been kind of what spurred the idea uh, for this series uh, as we've been really taking apart the gospel or conversion or what it means to come to faith uh, in Jesus Christ and taking that apart bit by bit, doctrine by doctrine, thought by thought as we've been looking at the concept of regeneration a few weeks ago. We looked at uh, faith and repentance last week. Today we're looking at the massive massive doctrine of justification and I and I don't feel ready to get into it in many ways for it is so important it is so central and we're going to be just scratching the surface of what justification means for us today 
Um, and I don't know how your week was. Uh, my week was a crazy week. We were sick for most of the week. Uh, so my daughter's still sick at home. I know many of you have been fighting illness along the way. And it was just one of those weeks where uh, things kind of come at you faster than you maybe can handle. And yet we're really thankful that this, the whole message, the whole concept of justification is it's not about me and my merit of what I can do, but what God has done for me and the forgiveness that he's provided for me. But during this week while we were sick, uh, as, you, as you spend time at home with kids, sick kids, or you yourself, uh, or my, myself feeling uh, sickly at times, and uh, you, you spend a decent amount of time at home, at least for us during this season, watching some Christmas movies. And uh, in the past, I've had some bad things to say about Hallmark movies, and I will avoid that topic since other people come after me if I mention Hallmark movies. But uh, last night, we were watching one as well. Uh, but any kind of those movies, those Hallmark movies, those Christmas time movies, they're, they're a lot of fun for family, and our kids love them as well. But, but every time you get into those, those, especially the kids' ones, the Disney ones, the Christmas ones, uh, that often revolve some way or, or shape or form around Santa Claus, uh, they often come around the very topic of trying to get to the point where what is the meaning of Christmas? It always gets around. I was, I was listening, watching those things with my kids on the couch the other night and just watching it and just, it, it's amazing how, how they have to work very difficult, very work very hard, come up with all kinds of ways to describe the meaning of Christmas and to explain Christmas because always, invariably, someone has forgotten the meaning of Christmas, correct, right? And, and invariably, someone it, it doesn't believe and invariably, Santa's sleigh cannot start without us all believing, right? And understanding the true meaning of Christmas, which is, it's always kind of this empty, like, what is the meaning of Christmas? Let us avoid baby Jesus and not talk about anything Christian. And let, it, let us simply talk about general concepts of love and, and touchy-feely things, right? And, and so what is Christmas all about? It's always just about spreading happiness and, and spreading kindness and spreading joy. Nothing wrong with these things, of course. Uh, but, it, but it's always funny how they get to that point. And it always goes back to this Santa guy, the Santa guy who, who's got, uh, who needs Christmas spirit uh, in order to keep his sleigh running and, and who, who we need to work very hard to try to get on his good list, right? His good side. You want to be on Santa's good side, right, kids, right? You don't want to be on the naughty list, right? Nice or naughty list. And uh, yet I found this hilarious in uh, this book on uh, Gifts of Grace uh, on page 35, uh, by thine all-sufficient merit is chapter 5, and he's talking about propitiation, which is something we'll talk about today. But he starts that off by saying, now maybe the kids need to cover their ears, but Santa Claus is a big, fat legalist. That's his first line. He says, he's a Pharisee in a festive hat. He is. Oh, you think he may seem jolly? He might enjoy cookies and milk and playing with Rudolph and frolicking around with elves in the North Pole. But he's full-on, law-centered, judgmental moralist, Right? Here, I'll prove it to you. This guy supposedly spends his entire year not just preparing to deliver toys on Christmas Day, but spying on every kid in the world, making sure that they measure up to some arbitrary standard of reward. He makes a list. He checks it twice. That's how hyper-focused he is on dividing kids into categories of good and bad. If you're good, you get a shiny new bike and a pretty new doll. And if you're bad, you get a lump of coal or a sack of rocks, right? And so we, we know Santa is, is very much always important on putting people into different lists, putting people onto the good list or the bad list. And Santa, sometimes maybe as we think about it, isn't all that joyful, and he certainly isn't very merciful or gracious to you if you're on the naughty list. And I began to think, as I am, pastor, very theological thinking all the time, right? What if God was like Santa? You weren't probably going to hear that at church, did you know, right? You know? What, what if God was like Santa, right? What if... 
What if all you could do was just hope you got on the nice list, you know, and uh, hope you weren't on the naughty list? What if, what if your fate was literally decided on your own merit? What you did that year. Santa watched your life each and every day, making sure you did enough good things to outweigh the bad things. Your effort, your ability to deserve enough good gifts, to get on the good list of the acceptable list of society where you are approved of, you then get the gift. The gift of whatever it is, right? But in the adult world, we know that those things aren't true, but yet we also know that in the world we live in, in society, there are those same kinds of naughty nice lists that the society runs itself on. Maybe not an actual naughty nice list, but certainly these days you'll probably hear people talking about things that are being practiced in different governments around the world called social credit scores. Have you heard of these? Beyond just like a credit score that you get to maybe approve for you to be able to qualify for a loan of sorts, this is a social credit score, a sense of your entire lifestyle added up to a number that allows you to be approved by the government in order to purchase certain things or travel certain, go certain places or, or experience certain fun things that you get to do. But if your social credit score is not good enough and uh, you, you haven't in your carbon your carbon emissions is too high, then you, you know, that number will be drawn down and you will not be allowed to participate in society. If you do enough bad things, your social credit score will be lowered. And it's a way of controlling and providing a metric for every single person that walks on the face of that country or that place. It seems like a scary dystopian thing and yet it's people talking about these things all the time. I know social media companies run their ways on this as well. Often social media companies are trying to figure out different ways in order to be able to monitor and to be able to kind of provide this, this kind of blanket of approved and disapproved, what is accepted and not accepted, who is verified or on Twitter or whatever it might be, or non-verified, what list can you be, and are you meriting enough good things in order to be listened to? And in fact, I was reading a, um, and I saw this little video that was talking about this um, this guy named Jonathan Zittrain, he was a Harvard professor, and he wrote an article back in 2010, so like a long time ago, right? 2010 about the internet and digital ages and social media, and as it grows, uh, and the importance of potentially being able to uh, be able to kind of zero out your past and start over since everything is going to be functioning on a digital sphere. He, he invented this word or this concept called reputation bankruptcy. In a sense where you as a young person growing up online uh, will in a sense be gathering and accruing certain data and almost a score into how you're living and yet invariably people make mistakes. And what if you ever wanted to be in your life digitally where you could just kind of erase your background and start afresh? Could we ever get to a point where we could declare reputation bankruptcy and start over? Because what he said is all social media companies, Google, Facebook, Twitter, everybody, they acquire and they build and they take your data, they store it, and nothing is erased on the internet. And it's sold and traded and your data is used to exploit you and how you purchase and what you view and to change your mind on certain things. And it's all built on everything you do online compiled into one blueprint or identity for who you are. And yet many of that scares some of you, scares some of our thoughts that that, that people in companies know who we are. They know what we click on. They know where we go. They know our habits. They know our, our good things about us, and they know our very dark and evil secrets about us. And yet nothing is erased. It's there. It's th someone has it, right? I don't know how, and I don't even know how this all works. I just read about it, and it scares me, right? 
And yet, could you get to a place where you could just declare bankruptcy, reputational bankruptcy? Could you just erase that past and become a new person? Could you have a place where you, you know, I, I start over. But you see, our society today is not very interested in that. We, we enjoy cancel culture and culture, right? So we, if, if you're bad enough, we cancel you and we throw you on the naughty list. And good luck ever getting off that naughty list, right? Well, no matter a forgiveness or amount of merit that you can work will ever get you off that list. You're on that naughty list. You are now not approved by society. And I think this concept, as we think it through, maybe is something that we're maybe a little bit more familiar with than we thought. You think, oh, Santa, naughty, nice list, that's a silly story. And yet, much of life in our lives and how we operate our lives run in very, very similar ways. And I think if we thought of God, if we thought of Jesus in the same manner, I think we would have a very different view of the gospel. But what if, we, if Jesus is a not that, in a sense that he's done for us spiritually what we couldn't do for ourselves. Or he's even better than any of those bankruptcy, those things that we could ever wipe away and get rid of our past. And our, our past personal record is not permanent anymore. And maybe he didn't just wipe your past history clean. What if he, he totally restored it and put into it something even better, a righteous history, a good, a future? A pure one. It's now we find ourselves to be righteous and to be good and to be on the nice list, you could say, not by our own merit, but by his. His history, his sacrifice, his righteousness is, is now ours. This is what the Bible speaks about when it says that you are justified by grace. By his all-sufficient merit. I was listening to Christmas music as I do often throughout the year, okay, no, uh, this time of year, um, and I was listening to Christmas Eve, and one of the songs that came up uh, was one that's not as, as well known, it's not a Christmas carol, maybe you sing all the time, it's maybe a more lesser known one, but it's called, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, and I started listening to the words, and it hit me, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, here's the first line, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins, release us. Wouldn't that, the freedom that you can picture and think through. You're in, you're in social media jail. You're in cancel culture jail. You have a past that is sordid and evil and destructive. Is there any hope for you? Is there any forgiveness, mercy, grace in this world? Or it certainly doesn't seem like that in today's culture. And yet, what if God has come to set you free? to release you from your sin so that you can find your rest in thee. And then he says this, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in our hearts alone. And this is the line that uh, I also found in this book, uh, Gifts of Grace. He mentions it in this chapter. By thine all-sufficient merit, by thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Not by my merit, by my ability, but by God's, by Jesus' merit that is all-sufficient for me. I am now raised with him. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Come, thou long-expected King, by thine all-sufficient merit. 
And this is really the point that the book of Romans is making for us. The book of Romans is laid out in a way that is a theological explanation of the gospel and what God has done for us, and it is a, a lengthy exposition of it. And in the beginning, in Romans 1 and 2 and 3, we begin to see the, the situation unfold for us, and it looks very bleak in the beginning. Romans 1 is, is this aspect where we see God's wrath. In fact, I'll read for you Romans 3.10. It highlights some of this. Romans 3.10 says, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. It goes on to describe this situation. In fact, then in verse 19, it talks about how the whole world will be held accountable to God. And if no one is righteous and we're all being held accountable to God, we're in a deep situation. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, against all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 2, 4 through 11 speak of not only the God's wrath, but God's judgment, and that his judgment is righteous, and that we have rebelled against him. It is his righteous judgment. We might try to presume on God's kindness and, and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to draw us to repentance, to turn back to him. We can't keep living in our sin and expecting nothing to change. Rather, that, that this is, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself, the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's a bleak picture. It's a stark picture. It's meant to, to grip us. Romans 1 and 2. Difficult to read if you have no hope, if you do not know Jesus. But rather, as we read, we, we begin to see the plan of salvation unfold. For God's righteous judgment, God's wrath is, is being poured out, will be doled out, and yet... God shows no partiality. In some ways, we enjoy that phrase. Yeah, no partiality. We're all in the evil, uh, uh, even playing field with evil. We are, we are all the same. And that sounds really nice. And yet, when you think about it, that means everybody is under the law. Everyone is uh, unrighteous. Everyone is a sinner. God shows no partiality, it says in this passage. We are all under the law. We are all condemned. And we are all in need of a Savior. We're all on the naughty list, okay? We, 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 this is the plight of mankind. A weary world without the rejoicing part. There is hope, however. The light of the world has come in, as John 1 reminds us, has come to shine into the darkness. So sinners, ultimately, we need saving. That is the beginning of the gospel. That is the beginning of Romans. We need saving and we need a savior. You and me humble ourselves to admit that. We need saving and yet God has sent a savior to come to save. These things are so well known. It's almost like what I have to do is force some of you who grew up in the church, who grew up in the church day in and day out. Some of these things are almost so commonplace. You've done Advent Christmas every year of your life. You know the storyline. What you have to do is force yourself to reconcile and to consider these truths again and afresh. Allow the Spirit of God to remind your heart today that some of these things are even for you. That the gospel is not just for you one time when you were born again and you don't need it the rest of your life. It's something you preach to yourself day in and day out. So allow yourself, some of you who have grown up in the church, you've heard these things, to, to allow these truths to, to just refresh your heart and soul for God's forgiveness and grace over you, okay? Because I know what it's like to hear some of these things 
Like, I was a sinner. God came to save me. Yeah, great job, all right? But remind ourselves that we need that even today. We need that reminder as it humbles us in our relationships with others and what we do in this day and age. Reminds us that, that we are on the same level playing field as everybody else. We're no better than anybody else. And it is by God's grace and God's grace alone that we stand here before you justified. And so he sends a savior. And, and I love the, the chapter. I almost used this whole chapter to, to speak on today. But in Titus 2 and Titus 3, it's incredible passages that speak about the Christmas story, but also the, the truth of justification and, and the gospel. Titus 2, 11 says, for the grace of God has appeared. This is Christmas. The grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Titus 2, 11, it's, it's appeared, it is here, it has brought salvation. It is the baby in a manger. God has come down. And yet, Titus 3, 4 also talks about that same concept of it appearing. It says in Titus 3, 4, when the goodness of God, when the goodness of God and the loving kindness of God our Savior has appeared, he saved us. So, so in the baby in the manger, it is that he has come, the Savior is here, but what has he come to do? He has come to save. And Jared Wilson, in his, comment, in his uh, Gifts of Grace book, that I'll reference several different times in this message, talks about the same idea, that he saved us. Not because of things we've done, but in fact, this whole point of that he has saved us, not because of works that we've done, because we couldn't save ourselves. This is the whole point of Christmas. He says, this is the whole point of Christmas. That's the whole point of Christianity. The point is, God came down to earth, incarnate, to save sinners like you and me. It's as simple as I can do it for you and explain it for you. Jesus loves you. Jesus has come to save you. And so, in some ways, like we joked last week, we can close in prayer. <laughs> but let us, let us think about this topic today. And that's what I want to do today. Is just We know that gospel message in some ways, but how does he do that? Well, Titus 3, 5, and 6 talk about this idea. Where, where he has come to save us, as, it, as the verse said, not because of works done by us in righteousness, according to, but according to his own mercy. By the washing and the regeneration, the renewal of the spirit comes into our life and, and regenerates us. We talked about that. Gives us new life and it washes and purifies the sins away and we become white as snow. He pours this out upon us through the spirit and through Jesus Christ. And here's the phrase, so that being justified, I think this is verse 6 there. Being justified. That's what we're talking about today. By his grace. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Being justified by his grace, we might become. I love that phrase, that idea, that connection. We're justified by his grace. Not by my merit. Not by my works, my heritage, my background skin color, my good looks, my good works, whatever you'd like to fill in that blank. I'm not justified by anything except God's grace, his mercy, and his love. So by God's grace, it in a sense now demands of us a whole new life. That he has done all of this freely, gifted it to us, that we receive it in faith now, in a sense, what's required of us now? What does that change in you now? 
was listening to a podcast and Tim Keller was sharing a story about someone he had uh, been witnessing to early on in his ministry. And uh, this woman had been coming to faith and coming to grips with her faith. Didn't grow up churched, but was trying to grasp and understand what it meant to come to God in faith by his grace. It was something that she was having trouble grasping, but she had some profound statements. In the sense, often when we come to grace, um, we, we often say, well, if, if God's grace has come to me, now I can go and live as I please. Well, the Bible says, you know, are we saved by that, right? God's grace comes into our life so that we can just sin as we please? No, no, no. By no means, it says. And so here, she, she's saying that, well, now that God has saved me by his grace and nothing that I have done, I don't bring anything to the table, then she was, made this remark to him that ultimately, God can now require of me anything that he asks. <laughs> it's now, in a sense, he's upped the, the aspect of obedience and worship to him because I don't bring anything to the table. And so she was almost speaking of it in a, in a fearful way. Almost in a way that, this is almost frightening. Because now God can ask of me almost anything. He, he can require of me of my entire life. Because he gave his entire life for me. And I didn't do anything to receive this gift. Now if you buy the ticket, you can say, well, I bought the ticket. I purchased my place to be here. I can leave if I want. Or I can critique and judge and say what I want because I paid my way to get to this place. But if, but if someone else paid your way, you, you all of a sudden don't have the same platform to stand upon. And so we, we have to grapple with this sense that God's grace has come into our life. It is a free gift. And in a sense, now we, we now are declared righteous before God and it is a life-changing declaration. It is a life-changing aspect of understanding and coming to faith. So if the world is sitting in sin and as we sing in error pining, the world is needing a savior. Jesus comes on Christmas to rescue the world. But how does this work? We talk about grace, we talk about justification, but what does that mean? Well, that's what we read here in Romans 3. I'm not gonna look at everything, but we're gonna kinda just break it apart as we run through it. Romans 3, 21 through 26 is this description of righteousness being made righteous before a holy God through faith. What is justification? If I asked to give you, if I asked you, some of you grew up in church, right, and I quizzed you, right, what was justification? What, what would you say? You know, what would be your answer? There are many different ways to describe it. Some would just ultimately say God declaring us righteous. One said the acquittal or the declaration of being righteous before God as a judge. It is a central aspect of Paul's understanding of what God has achieved for believers through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some of the catechisms you may have learned growing up, one of the newer catechisms that we often use with some of the kids around here is new, the New City Catechism, and it says in question 32, what is justification and sanctification? Just asks the question, what is justification? What is sanctification? Well, justification means our declared righteousness before God made possible by Christ's death and resurrection for us. Sanctification means our gradual growing righteousness made possible by the Spirit's work in us. We're gonna look at sanctification next week. Today, we're trying to focus on the, the justification in some sense. Justification declares from God's perspective 
declares us righteous from God's perspective towards us. You could say that regeneration, um, that, that, that work for the faith and repentance is often this inward life exposed outward. God's view upon us now is changed and justification is now God's perspective on our lives. God looks down and sees us as righteous. Sanctification is that growing in grace, this inward transformation day in by day out in his righteousness. Sometimes we mix them up, justification and sanctification. They are not the same, but they in, are inseparably linked. You can't have one without the other. You don't have true sanctification and growing in grace in your life without justification. You need them both. They're inseparable. Um, Dana Ortland said justification is outside in, and we lose justification if we make it inside out. Like if justification and me justifying myself before a holy God is what I can do on the inside and produce in my own work and merit, then we lose justification and thereby also lose sanctification. So it comes from holy outside of us. By grace you're saved, not works. Justification, we are proclaimed righteous before God. Clean, debt is paid, declared faultless with respect to our legal standing before God. Positionally, you are now at peace with God. It's incredibly good news. Justification, our standing and position before a holy God, it now fuels our growth in him. We now desire to give our lives to him, as that woman was talking about earlier. Living out this identity in freedom, in grace, in mercy, to grow, to mature, to run, to, to go now in the power of the Spirit begins in this initial statement of regeneration, faith, and repentance, and as God looks down upon us, justification in his declaration. And for Martin Luther, many of you know the, ref, the reformer, this was the, the pivotal moment in his understanding where the reformers which bursted into this Protestant reformation, where justification was key. It is central. It's so important, Martin Luther said, if this article of justification stands, the church will stand. If this article collapses, the church will collapse. It's vitally important. And we see that in verse 21 and following where it speaks about the righteousness of God. It begins with that. Verse 21, the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. For we are unrighteous. It's built that case in Romans 1, 2, and 3. Now it gets to this point, verse 21. But the righteousness of God has been made manifest or has been made visual, has been displayed, has been revealed. We see that in Jesus becoming made flesh. God made flesh, the word John chapter 1, displayed and manifested before us all. God's righteousness manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, meaning it prophesied that this would come. So the righteousness of God comes, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 22, through faith. More phrases like that that echo the reforming time. The reformers spoke about sola fide, faith alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. And I know I'm missing it. Sola Christus, I think there's another. Uh, but this idea of these pivotal pillars uh, that was central to understanding the way the gospel works. Faith alone. Christ alone. And grace alone. Nothing more. It is through faith in Jesus Christ that we find our justification. 
And this aspect is reminded that this is for everybody. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then it says there's no distinction. No distinction. That's the beauty of the gospel message. It's the beauty of you coming into this place today. It's that every single one of you come from different backgrounds. You have different strengths and weaknesses. You have different socioeconomic statuses, different ethnicities, different backgrounds and histories. And yet, we're reminded that there's no distinction between any one of us. No distinction. And yet as we come, we are all in need of the grace of God universally. And God has also provided the grace of God for anyone who would believe, it says. Anyone who would have faith in Jesus can be saved. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's inclusive for all. Welcome, he says. Last week, come, anybody. Literally, remember that? Isaiah 55 it was. Come, anybody who's thirsty. Come, anybody who's hungry. And take, eat, and be filled. Anyone. There's no distinction. I can remember in school taking tests uh, and, and uh, sometimes not doing so well on the tests. And yet there was always those couple of kids who seemed to get 100% on everything they did, you know. That wasn't me in school. But the, the, the curve never seemed to work out super well or whatever. It was like the whole class failed and those two kids always crush it. And you're like, come on, right. And I'm always over there struggling, trying to pass, whatever it might be. Some of you may be represent that. You know what that's like. Some of you are like, I always got 100% on everything, you know. But that idea of what if that kid's grade, right, that 100% was now universally for all of us who fail. Well, frankly, it doesn't seem fair, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And yet, in some ways, that's the beauty of it, is that it isn't fair. It's what we're talking about. The beauty that that 100% grade is now applied to everyone in the class. It is now imputed to those who would receive that failing grade, have now passed with flying colors. And so there's no distinction, for all of us have been justified by grace as a gift. This is verse 24. It says, for all have sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God, we are all sinners in need of repentance, there's no distinction, we're all in the same playing field, we're all failing, we're all on the naughty list, yet we will all be justified. We'll all be justified if we come to him by grace as a gift. And that's why this is a beautiful gifts of grace. It's given to you, free. Receive it. It's a gift. You didn't earn the gift. Take the gift. Enjoy the gift. Receive the gift. Believe. All right? This is that idea of grace and faith. It's the best Christmas ever. Best Christmas gift ever. You didn't earn the gift. It was given to you. Receive the gift of grace and salvation, and you will be justified, you will be redeemed, your guilt and your sin will be removed. And that's what he goes on to describe for us in verse 24, 25, 26. It uses some of these big terms. Big terms where we say that we're justified by grace as a gift through his redemption and by the propitiation of his blood. Some of you, those are big terms, and some of you maybe are new to the church, and that is like hitting you like a ton of bricks. Those are big theological terms, and yet you're trying to wrap your mind around them. Believe me, I've grown up the church my whole life, and I still have to wrap my mind around the differences and the importance of those big theological terms. Justification, redemption, and propitiation. We look at this word justification as we've already done. Justification is a legal term. It's this forensic declaration in which the accused person is categorized as not guilty. It's beautiful. And they go free. Redemption carries with it in this concept here as it's described, really that through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, we've been freed. Redemption is an idea of being 
bought, being purchased, being bought back, redeemed. Something is redeemed. One illustration often uses one is person is redeemed out of the slave market in sin and adopted into the family of Christ. You are enslaved to sin. You are redeemed by the price that Jesus has paid. He has absorbed and taken your debt. He has purchased you as his own. And now the word actually says we have become slaves to righteousness. It's beautiful. So this redemption, we are in a way, another way people would describe it is redemption refers to God's ransoming of believers through the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross and all the benefits that come with that. Then this term of propitiation, maybe one, maybe a little less familiar for some of you. Propitiation, now many people describe it in different ways. For me, as Wilson and others describe it, helps me understand. He says it entails forgiveness by satisfying the judgment of the wronged party. The wrath of God is not directed to us anymore. We are now free. We deserve death, we deserve the failing grave, but we've received life. Jesus has taken our penalty and our punishment. He satisfied the judgment of God. And now, we are free to be at peace with him because of Christ's propitiation for us. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, they work together as the triune God in this. God is not some vindictive, temperamental father, angry and can't wait to punish his son. Rather, Jesus goes willingly to the cross. He willingly lays down his life for his friends. And God now is able to vindicate his holy justice and act accordance in his holy, with his holiness and also work out his love and grace for sinners. It's the, the, the working out of God's character and nature by which he cannot change. Romans 5, 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We are saved from God's wrath because we've been justified by the blood of Christ. His blood is what gives us propitiation. Wilson also says it's an act of perfect love. God was able to satisfy justice and forgiveness of sinners at the same time by performing the satisfaction for them, by sending the Son as a substitute to pay the debt they owe, the debt they owe and die in their place. We know in 1 John 4, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus was sent to be the propitiation for your sins. We know this in John 3 where it says that Jesus was not sent into the world to condemn the world. He was not sent into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world and bring it to salvation. This is why it's so important to remind us, even from this pulpit and from this place, the encouragement that is found in the gospel. The simple statements, Jesus loves me, this I know. Little kitty songs, those are for low-level Christians, right? Once you upgrade to the higher levels, you don't need all that basic stuff anymore, right? Maybe we think that in our, in our minds sometimes. And yet it's some, so often it's the most basic truths that are the most life-changing. The fact that Jesus loves you. The fact that God has sent his son into the world for God so loved the world that he gave. Imagine that. Gave you a gift gift of Christmas to save you from your sins, a state in which you were in that you could not save yourself. You are now justified by his sacrificial love. And out of his grace and loving kindness, he, he took your place, he died for your sins, he paid your penalty to be your justification. To justify sinners before a holy God so that we could be redeemed 
bought out of the slave market of sin, purchased, redeemed, and adopted into his family so that we are brought back to God. Being justified before him, we are now at peace with him. Jesus is our propitiation, meaning we are not destined for hell. We are destined for an eternal life with God in the new heavens and the new earth. God's wrath is removed. The penalty is satisfied. Death is conquered. Life returns in its place, and we may enjoy life abundantly. I mean, this is really good news, people, right? And if you're sitting there, you must have a smile on your face. It's a, it's a beautiful no, news, of, and that's why I was saying how, how wonderful week three is about joy, and we're talking about justification. It, it's incredible. It's the best news ever. And, and yet, what is this in verse 25? God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received in faith, and this was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he passed over past sins. And as we bring this to a close... I want to look at this passage in the Old Testament briefly that reminded me of the Passover. Exodus 12 says, as it reminds us of the Passover in the Old Testament. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike down the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt. I will execute my judgments. I am the Lord. And yet the blood over your doorposts shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day will be a memorial for you this day to keep it as a feast unto the Lord throughout the generations and as a statue forever. You shall keep this feast. God passed over. Passed over his people. Here we see in Romans 3 the beauty of the gospel. That in God's divine forbearance and patience and longsuffering he passed over former sins. And as because of the work of Jesus Christ as our representative, as our substitute, as our ambassador, we know that God now passes over our sin. Because Jesus has been made, as the Old Testament illustration also further exemplifies and illustrates for us, Jesus now in a way has been made our scapegoat. Maybe you're familiar with that term. It comes from Leviticus chapter 16. We've talked about this in the past in Leviticus 16 description of the process of the day of atonement. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel were given instructions as to how they would atone for the sins of the holy people of Israel that were to be set apart from the nations. In Leviticus 16, it speaks about how Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself. He shall make atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take two goats And set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats. One lot for the Lord and the other for Azazel. This word is, this word scapegoat that we translate today. It is uh, potentially related to this concept of uh, the the wilderness of sin and death and demonic activity. And so in verse 9 it says, Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. Verse 10 
But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it. And there, get this, it shall be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel, that scapegoat. And then you'll see in verse uh, 21, and others, and uh, it says that Aaron shall lay both hands on the head of the live goat, confess it, the iniquities of the people of Israel, and all their transgressions and sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat, and as he imputes the sin of the people, he will send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is ready. Verse 22, and the goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself into a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free into the wilderness. It is this idea of the scapegoat, taking the sins of the people far away to be destroyed, to be forgotten, to be taken. It is that he has taken our sins far away. He has passed over our sins. He's provided a substitute. I don't know how many different ways I can describe the gospel and the good news for you today, and hopefully you're able to grapple and understand some part of it today, because this is the beauty of it. Back in Romans 3, This is, in a sense, makes God just and the justifier. Verse 26 says that God would be made just and holy and righteous and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Or, I like the way the CSB says it. So that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. So that God would be righteous in his judgment and forgiveness and that he would declare you righteous if you have faith in Jesus. It's the gospel. It's good news. God rendered us to be just and righteous. God has taken the righteousness of Jesus and put it for ours. It is not that I am righteous. It is not that I am perfect and holy before God. It is that Jesus is my substitute. Jesus now lives within me and now sanctifies me to be made like his son. It is Jesus who is my representative. It is Jesus' merits whereby I am found sufficient before a holy God. It's beautiful. And so, fortunately, maybe we are not unable to erase our online identity. <laughs> maybe we cannot get to a place where we can take away any history or past record or your, maybe it's your driving record, your permanent record, your past. It cannot be erased and wiped away. You can't always declare social bankruptcy. Companies and governments may use your actions and put you on a naughty, nice list. Who knows what might happen? Santa does check his list twice, right? But imagine the thought, all your past deeds, every evil intention, every mess up, every, every difficulty, every failure, being wiped clean, be given a, a fresh, clean slate. And now, not a clean slate for you to then work your way beyond that but rather a clean slate that is then substituted for Jesus' perfect record that's substituted for yours so that you may be justified holy and righteous before God. The word says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. The word also says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is grace. In some ways and in some manner to our human minds, it is not fair. That's the the song that Reliant K always says. The beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. (laughs) What's fair is something we deserve. Punishment and judgment, but what what we've been given in its place 
is new, blessed, eternal life and a relationship with Jesus. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free.